This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. In a few days, the conditions that make this retreat will dissolve. The silence, the schedule, the seclusion will come to an end. And each one of us will be asking ourselves between now and then, what is it that I can take home besides memories? Because it is not for many of us to live our life in retreat like this, but rather to spend most of our time and energy engaged in the world of our household responsibilities, our work responsibilities, our civic responsibilities, social engagements. The question has to arise How do I both take the wisdom and what I've learned from this practice or this period of practice or this training, how do I take the wisdom of that into my life outside of these particular conditions? And in addition, how do I live my life outside of this intensive training in order to support my highest aspiration. We've put together some thoughts in the last hour or two and would like to share some of our thoughts. I think the question for many of us is really something like given that what we experience here or in a similar situation and how deeply we can be touched by the simplicity of just being at ease with ourselves, the clarity of the teachings the sincerity of our aspiration, the quivering of our heart when we see compassion, the openness of our connection with others that we've never spoken to. When we feel that, we acknowledge that, we don't want to lose it. We know what it's like on the other side of the silence, where life is busy, life is full. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of competing chatter and activity and busyness. How are we going to ground what we know to be true from our own experience? How are we going to ground that in our life? Can we somehow plant our commitment and aspiration in our life and let our life revolve around that? Creating a Dharma lifestyle Or are we going to live our life as we did before the Dharma or before the retreat and just kind of try to see it through Dharma lenses? Just kind of smear a thin layer, a thin gloss of Dharma on top and call that a Dharma lifestyle. 
I mean, the question is real because there are not established in our culture ways of doing that. And so each one of us is a pioneer. And I have found my way for three decades, and Kamala has found her way for three decades, and Joseph for four decades. And each one of you is finding your way. The Buddha had many ways of pointing to practice, monitoring practice, measuring practice. Whether it's the three trainings of the Eightfold Path, sila, living in harmony, samadhi, calming the mind, panya, developing understanding. Or whether it's the three bases of merit, the three foundations of the Dharma, Dana, practicing generosity, sila, living in harmony, bhavana, developing the mind. One list of the Buddha that is particularly helpful for lay householders like ourselves is the understanding of the development of the forces of purity in our heart. And these forces of purity are known as the paramis. They're the, you might say, they're the qualities of the awakened mind. Sometimes when we hear what might be the qualities of the awakened mind or the qualities of a Buddha mind, we might think that they're pretty esoteric, they're pretty dramatic, they're pretty, what, subtle or obscure or mystical in some ways. But the qualities of the awakened heart are within each one of us. Generosity, living in harmony, letting go, understanding, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolution or determination, steadfastness, loving-kindness, balance of mind. These qualities are not mystical. They're not esoteric. They're the qualities that we recognize in anyone that we consider a good human being. And each one of us has these qualities, to a degree. But it is the development of these qualities through the most ordinary, everyday, mundane activities of our life that prepares the heart for liberating insight. Taking our practice home or developing a Dharma lifestyle is about paying attention to the most ordinary events of your life. Not trying to make something special of it, but just trying to live it as it really is. And while we offer instructions here in mindfulness of sitting, mindfulness of walking, mindfulness of general activities, the path of practice at home is Mindfulness of everything you do. Whatever you do, try to be mindful. Is there anyone here who doesn't have an opportunity to practice patience in their life? (laughs) Or have to question whether really to be truthful in this situation or not? Or have to arouse energy to meet the demands of the day, or find the opportunity to consider what is the most balanced response in this situation. We all face these opportunities many times each day. And it is in 
how we approach these activities that call forth these qualities that we reaffirm our aspiration, realign our intention, and develop the purity of our heart. When we come on retreat like this, we get the opportunity to test our development. In Asia, where this tradition of practice comes from, the understanding is that householders, lay people, do your life 10 months a year. Take an intensive retreat twice, two months a year. And gradually, year by year, you'll see the development of your paramis and the deepening of your insight. For some of us, it's not possible to get two months every year. But nevertheless, we can get some time to look deeply. The paramis that I just mentioned, while not mystical or esoteric, do take practice. And I've categorized them or I've grouped them into some topics, really. Some of them are about developing endurance or stamina, patience, energy, determination. Some are about developing the mind that is adaptable, that's flexible, that's open, responsive, equanimity, loving kindness, living in harmony. Some are about just simplifying your life, learning to let go, practicing generosity. And some are about developing the understanding of wisdom and truthfulness. As I look back over my years of practice, I think I could honestly say that the way my path has unfolded has been purely accidental. Which doesn't mean that I haven't struggled with trying to know what the right decision was or what the right next step was. But in hindsight, it really does seem like I didn't know what I was doing most of the time. But somehow, choices were made, practices were undertaken, paramis developed, insight grows. Gently, gradually, the heart disentangles itself from that which causes suffering. For each one of us, we will be asking ourselves the question, how often should I go on retreat? How much time should I spend in solitude? How much time should I spend in service? Should I study and read the text, the sutras, the Abhidhamma? Or is practice good enough? Do I really need a teacher? Or can I practice on my own and find my own path, my own way? Do I need to go to Asia? Do I need to ordain? Or can I just come to IMS and practice three months a year? Patience being a parami and a quality of the awakened mind, why isn't persistence? Because it seems to me persistence is equally needed as patience. How much is practice about letting go? And how much is it about integrating our understanding into what we already have? Is insight enough? Or do I need to do a little more shopping and look, at, look to other traditions, 
other teachers, other practices. What's the value of the Brahma-viharas? Should I do them now or practice insight? There are many questions that we each will have to ask ourselves daily, monthly, yearly. I like the way that Don Juan taught Carlos to consider his spiritual practice and the growth of his spiritual understanding. He said, spiritual practice is is balancing the terror of being a human being with the wonder of being a human being. It can be terrifying to just face what it is we all have to do. And every step of it is full of wonder. But to find that balance is our challenge. And in some ways, balance is what practice is all about. Finding the balance. My first retreat, I mentioned earlier, was purely accidental. I thought I was going on a two-week holiday. Took my books, took my uh, hobbies, and off we went to walk into the first three-month course where it was silence, and it looked like zombies walking around. And it was, as I mentioned, I had no interest in meditation. I didn't know anybody who meditated. I wasn't interested in Buddhism or spirituality. I was just looking for a holiday. What kind of wisdom is that? Well, the wisdom was in deciding to stay. And I'm sure each one of you has, you know, maybe in the first days of your retreat here, we're wondering, what in the world am I doing here? And something allowed you to stay. There's wisdom in that. Even though you may not have been able to feel it rationally or logically, something in your heart knew. Stay in touch with that. Because that's where the answers to your spiritual questions are to be found. Two years after taking my first retreat, I got an announcement that uh, there was going to be a work retreat here at IMS. They just bought this place, and it was very run down. They needed to have some people come do some work to, so they could get it prepared for holding retreats here. And without a split-second thought, I knew I had to go. And I'd been away. I, 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 hadn't done any, I did not have a daily practice after my first retreat. <laughs> and when I got here, an, a really interesting thing happened. I didn't know anybody. I'd only done a two-week retreat two years before. Someone in the office took me upstairs to my room, which was second floor of the Catskills, somewhere in the middle of the hall, looking out to the forest. And I walked in the room. There was nothing in there except a two-inch foam mat on the floor. I walked in the room. I looked out the back window, and I knew I was going to spend a lot of my time here. Now, I'm not a mystical type. I'm not an intuitive type. I'm not an emotional type. I'm just a thinker. <laughs> and that's been my struggle. But nevertheless, nevertheless, again, it was one of those, my heart said, this is where you belong. This is where you're going to spend your life. This is, this is it. And I knew that. Believe me, I had months of arguing with myself. Should I, shouldn't I, can I, can't I, will I, won't I, how to, can't I? You know, back then, you had to pay to come here to try out to be on staff. And the, and, and the grand benefits of being on staff was $20 a month. That's it. Yet, you know, when the heart calls, you can't say no. It was such an impulsive, out-of-the-ordinary thing for me. Sometimes Dharma practice is like that. 
finding your way is not always logical. Sometimes it feels like we're just stumbling from one opportunity to the next. And to try to pin it down to anything more definite and more logical deadens the heart. So how do we stay awake to our heart? After eight years of being here on staff and, and participating in the life of IMS, there was a level of discontent bubbling up in my mind. And life, life was good. I, I, I now had a daily practice. And I was on the board of directors and was involved here and living in, living in the nearby neighborhood. And Dharma had become a pretty substantial part of my life, but life wasn't satisfying. There was a level of discontent or a kind of discontent bubbling up in my heart that was not going to be satisfied by a newer car, a bigger house, a better job, another retreat. And thankfully, mindfulness was strong enough to know that not to try that, but to know that mindfulness offered an alternative. And so I made a decision, again, contrary to all of my expectations and contrary to what all of my circle of friends expected of me, I decided to let go of it all and go to Burma. I'd never traveled out of New England. <laughs> I, I was not a world traveler, believe me. You know, I had difficulty getting to Boston. <laughs> and yet, pop into your mind, into the heart comes this idea, I want to go live in a monastery. Well, this was not convenient for my partner at the time, or my business at the time, or it wasn't convenient for anything else. But the heart demanded it. Now's the time. And I remember a, an incident, or a, the, I guess it's the deciding moment. I was here on retreat doing my midwinter 10 days, taking a snooze, I think, really. I probably called it lying meditation, but it was probably snoozing. <laughs> and this image came into my mind of a shrouded, well, I guess just a skull. And it said to me, as clear as could be. I mean, if I was into having visions and, and uh, seeing things like that, this, this was it. And I'm not, but this was it. And this, this non-being shrouded, well, face of death, said to me, the moment of death is the most important moment of your life. That was it. Gone. But with that, I knew what had to be done. It was a bother. It was a bother to go through the next 10 months of disentangling myself from everything that needs to be done. But I realized now that that decision was really the result of an aspiration I'd made eight years earlier. When I first saw that, that monk that I told you about, Tungpula Sayadaw, been in the cave for 33 years, practicing alone. When I saw him, I said, I don't know what it is he's done, I don't know what it is he's got, but I want to do that. I want to be like that. I want to have those qualities. But my life was not ready to do that. And it took eight years of practicing and doing whatever needed to be done for the conditions to support my aspiration to be there. But because I'd had that aspiration, when the conditions were there, 
the decision could be made. So I encourage you, each one of you, whatever it is you might feel the urge to do, or you might like to do, or you might aspire to do in your Dharma practice, even if conditions don't support it now, don't put it out of your mind. Don't dismiss it as unreasonable. All of Dharma practice is unreasonable. <laughs> but, <laughs> but nurture it. You know, and when conditions come around in your life, the external conditions of financial support and relationships and health, parents or non-parents or kids and non-kids or whatever it is, and the internal conditions when your heart is ready, then you can make the decision to do it. If you don't nurture your aspiration, but you just push it out of your mind, when the conditions are there to support it, you won't have it to, 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 to make a decision. So even though it may seem unreasonable, unrealistic, impossible and improbable, you don't know when the conditions will support it. Unfolding path by accident, <laughs> unfolding, unfolding path by impulsion, unfolding path by aspirations and conditions. Later in life, I was one of those people that I couldn't, I couldn't read a Dharma book. I, I just, they just didn't make sense to me. They just were not of interest. And for the first eight about 11 or 12 years, couldn't read Dharma books, just wanted to practice. Not that it was that good, but nevertheless, just wanted to practice. Somewhere in my mid-years in Burma, I had to leave Burma to go to Malaysia to get a visa, to renew my visa and get back to Burma. And someone gave me the, the book of the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology. Never heard of it, didn't know anything about it, it was not easy reading, but it's where I started my Dharma study, if you will. I wasn't looking for it, but again, it was just kind of accidental. Something fell in my lap, so I picked it up. Much of Dharma practice is like that. Finding the, or taking the opportunity when it presents itself. So much of finding our way in cultivating a Dharma lifestyle is, is about having, a, having the right attitude. And the right attitude in life is quite is very important, especially if we want to use our life as a spiritual path. Because it has a lot to do with accepting the way things are, which is so important in our awakening to the way things are. Our conditioning is not that way. A lot of our conditioning is to to get and strive and push and demand and, you know, whine and, you know, just kind of, to be kind of harsh with ourselves, with others, with our environment. And to, to recognize that that's not always the right attitude. That's not always the attitude that will soften the heart so that it can open and understand the way things are. So consciously working on, you know, what is the right attitude to approach this situation is always necessary and often quite difficult. There's a, one, one other dimension of, of practice, Dharma practice, that I want to mention, and then I'm going to let Kamala, share some of her 
understanding too. And that is the, the, the understanding that there is a breadth to Dharma practice and Dharma understanding, and there is a depth to Dharma practice and Dharma understanding. And when I talk about the breadth of Dharma practice and understanding, I'm talking about bringing the whole of your life into your Dharma practice. Seeing that whatever you do can be done with awareness, right attitude, understanding, wisdom and compassion. Whether it's writing a book, raising a family, repairing bicycles, or doing nothing. And that is very It helps us to stop struggling with the conditions of our life. But there's another dimension to Dharma practice, and that is going deep. And in order to go deep, it means to go deep in your understanding. And it's like, you know, if you were going to dig a well for, for water, and you start digging in one place, and you get down a few feet, and you hit some very difficult rocks and hard pan, and you think, oh, this is too difficult. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go somewhere else where it looks easier. And you start digging there. Before too long, you'll get to something that's pretty difficult. And if you decide to move elsewhere and start digging, soon you'll have a lot of shallow holes and no water. But the understanding in Dharma practice is if you really want to get the refreshing drink of the Dharma, you have to go deep. And going deep means within a tradition, with a teacher, you go to the end. And there's no substitute for that. There's just no substitute for going to the end of your, your suffering. And so we should not mistake a very mindful, integrated life with a liberated mind. And in the course of our Dharma path and practice, we'll have the opportunity to do both, if we take it. So we're hoping that during the course of both of our um, experiences in the Dharma, we'll be able to answer some of the questions that Steve put forth in the beginning, or maybe all of them. In our ever-deepening practice, realization of the Dharma, there are teachings that are the basic ground for uh, our hearts and minds to turn to wisdom for the development of everyone the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Noble Path, which is part of the Four Noble Truths. But as far as taking the practice home, there is really no like one-size-fits-all. It's very, very unique for each one of us. We each, of course, have different life situations and outer situation in life, and we each have a very unique inner terrain. So we really have to be careful that we're not taking what's good for someone else and seeing that, oh, I'll try that too. It's really helpful to um, find someone that knows your practice, that can advise you, that can talk it over with you, where there's a lot of back and forth. It's not just a one-way thing where you just receive advice, but you're able to talk about your practice to kind of lay your heart out and be really um, honest 
sometimes excruciatingly honest with yourself, with the other person. In actual down-to-earth reality, there's a lot of trial and error. It's no like you finally found the way, and you keep using that way because things keep changing, of course. We're constantly learning and recognize where to rebalance in our practice. So I'll talk a little bit about how that rebalancing takes place a little later. There's a lot of give and take in, in our practice as we learn how to bring it into our lives. But mostly, it's a lot of give. And that's why I think generosity is the first on the list of the paramis. Just being uh, in my own Dharma practice, I've had to learn to put out a lot, lot in the beginning, being raising um, young youngsters, being a single parent of three of them and later having four, and um, knowing clearly what my aspiration is, was, and trying to integrate that and uh, weave my family life into all of that. There were a lot of times when I really wanted to go to a retreat, but I just couldn't. There were a lot of times when I would sit in the morning and the kids would just keep coming in and out. So I'm just giving you kind of a reality check of how it really was and still is for me. Sometimes um, when I know being a yogi, it's really easy to look at someone offering the Dharma. And as Ruth Dennison says, it looks like we're just licking the honeypot, you know, up here. We just kind of float in on a cloud, and the Dharma talk has been just dropped from heaven, and um, everything is just right. And, you know, but it, it just takes, there's a lot of practice that went into hopefully just saying the right amount and um, saying enough about our own personal experiences so that you all can feel that it's possible for you. Um, the times when I thought that I could go to practice and I couldn't go because something was happening at home, I just had to let go. I just had to give in. I just had to accept this is the way it is right now. And I tell a story that's an old one, but it has a lot of mileage of how um, one day Manindra was uh, eating with us in the house. And it was during a time when I had um, an almost teenager and with a lot happening in her hormones. By the way, I have been given permission to tell every single story on my kids. Um, For a fee. For a fee. I mean, they get royalties. (laughs) How many stories did you tell this time, Mom? And, you know, so... They're really uh, keen on that, especially the last one. So there, there have been times when it's been really difficult, and this was one of the difficult times when uh, she was going through a very difficult time trying to balance herself and her emotions. And her father was a very, and is a very excellent father. Um, and um, Steve kind of, helped me raise her after she got into her teens. But during this time, she was, she was having a great big fight with her father. And Manindra was sitting at the table on this one side, facing that way, and I was facing this way on this side of the table. And uh, I heard the fight over there in the other room, and she was saying no. And her father said yes, no, yes. And it just started escalating. She ran around us, away from her father, went around me and around Manindra, down the hall, went into her bedroom, opened the door of her bedroom, slammed the door with all her might. Manindra is sitting there, looking at me. And I'm wondering, oh, this doesn't happen in India. You know, of course. (laughs) This is like only happens in my house because we're so dysfunctional, which is, you know... Dysfunctional is actually average in, in life. So she closes, slams the door, 
Manindra's eyes are darting all over the place. I'm wondering what to do. I'm thinking I'm going to sink down. I'm going to run away. I'm going to shout at them. I'm going to, you know, try to disappear. And so I hear her father saying, open the door. And she says, no. Open the door. No. Open the door or I'll kick the door down. And she says, go ahead. <laughs> but, you know, with a loud voice. So at this point, it's like I'm, I'm just ready to get up and run over there and see what I can do to stop the fight. But I'm frozen. And so he kicks the door down. <laughs> and she's, um, I don't know, you know, there's this, a bunch of stuff happening down the hallway. And Manindra, in all of his equanimity, in all of his patience, in his big mind acceptance turns to me, he puts his right hand on my left forearm, and he says, surrender to the law, meaning surrender to how it is. This is how it is right now. So I just take that with me all throughout different and various circumstances of my life. Surrender. This too, just surrender to this. And that was a pretty big thing for me. I mean, there was a lot of heightened emotions and loudness going on. And that example that Manindra gave me carries me a long, long ways. What he exemplified for me during that time was just to have this big, big mind filled with loving kindness, just to accept how it is out there, just to accept how it is in here, in our lives, when in our hearts when that's happening in our life out there. There's a lot of needing to like give in to how it is and just give up our agenda. And this is a big part of our path all along the way. So there were times for me when I would like to go and do a retreat or like to practice in the morning and not possible to do it the way I thought I, I could do it, um, raising the children. When the last one was born, um, just, I just remember vividly, she's 26 now, when uh, I do my sitting nursing her, and the other children would come in asking if they could uh, have some money for school, take the car, go out at night, or whatever. And I would just be sitting her with sitting with her, with the mind on either my belly or whatever the sensations were. And then the kids would come in and they'd say, Mom, and I just have to look up and just surrender. This is how it is. Just give in and say, yes, what do you need? Answer the question, have it taken care of, and go back. And that might be an hour or maybe a little more than an hour during that time period of doing that. And that's the way it is. That's the way it was in, in my time. So there was a lot of that kind of giving, 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 giving. But it paid off in the, in the end in my own life and continues to because there's a lot of understanding um, from my own family and my children about how important it is for me to now take some time for my own spiritual welfare to grow inside in ways that I, I can't do that in life. Growing in life, in daily life, is really different from the growth we have in intensive practice. There's nothing that can take the place of that. Granted, there are, there's growth we make in intensive practice that when we go out in the world, it can be just as sublime sometimes and just as depthful but we need that time in intensive practice. I feel that for me, that has been part of the great balance in my life. Sometimes um, we see that each parami that Steve talked about is supported by several, if not all, of the other paramis. So I look to see in my own life which one was mostly in the lead, which parami led and where the others were pulled in to that energetic stream. 
And then when it was pulled into that energetic stream, how those other paramis supported that one parami that kind of got me through. And it helped me through turning the mind towards deeper and deeper wisdom. So for me, that parami was patience most of the time. So you might check along the way which it is for you along the way when you're working with the paramis. And I, um, I just hope that each one of you will take the parami practice to heart. And today I was talking to someone uh, that um, really thought it might be good to, at the end of the day, take a look at uh, the list of paramis and see which ones were developed during the day. Because in that way, when we reflect and we review, it really heightens our awareness more towards the paramis that are being developed and which ones could we use more strength in. Actually, the name given to me at my birth was uh, is patience. In Spanish, it's paciencia. And so um, it seemed like I needed a lot of it in my life. And so uh, maybe my mother really knew, understood. Manindra gave me the name I use now. So patience pulled in a lot of other paramis, like equanimity, the energy that we need to stay balanced, basically, in our life, in our practice. And that balance is constantly changing. There might be the balance of, in a moment-to-moment sitting, whether to back off, be more spacious, whether to be more precise. It might be over a period of time the balance of using metta practice for a long period of time instead of doing insight practice. And that's something to talk over with somebody you can trust who really knows your practice. The energy of endurance, um, of coming back to the moment over and over again, is what uh, Manindra Uh, instilled in me. One of the first times that he gave me a teaching which really pierced my heart was when I came home from a practice with him. It was a 10-day or a two-week practice, and he came into the home to stay with us for a little while before he went on to his journey. And so he, um, he asked, you know, when or how long do I sit every day? And I, at that time, I had four children, and I said, and some were still quite young. And I looked at him incredulously like I really was going to do that. I really couldn't sit every day. And so he said, what do you do mostly every day? And without hesitation, I could say wash dishes. So he said, well, let's go to the sink And so he took me to the sink, and he stood by me where he taught me how to do washing dishes meditation. He gave me that instruction as if we were sitting under the Bodhi tree. And it was like that was the most pithy instruction that he could give. How to have a general sense of mindfulness in the movement of the hands, in the feeling of the warmth of the water, in the putting dishes here, wiping, soaping, and and not having a precise sense of it, but a very general sense of moving. And so even now, as the hands move like this, or as the uh, head turns like this, there's a general sense of doing that. And the mind can be constantly refreshed. So it's not uh, splayed out so much. Of course, it still goes into thinking, but there's places where the mind can rest just in general movements like that, in turning, in reaching, in bending. And so doing that daily life kind of thing was a place where I learned to bring practice in the most sacred way. And that has helped me so much when I come back into Uh, intensive practice like this because it's more seamless. I don't have to learn how to be mindful in between times, which is a lot of the time in practice. So a lot of momentum and a lot of power 
starts to build up in your practice that way. Manindra took me into the hallway of where I did a lot of walking from the bedroom to the living room and said, uh, we stood at the threshold of the bedroom and he said, when you step into this hallway, only stepping is happening. Stepping, stepping, stepping and feeling the, the foot or the leg, whatever is the predominant experience in that stepping. Nothing else is happening. And actually stood beside me and walked beside me in just with such integrity. That, that teaching was as important as any teaching to me, and probably one of the most important teachings of my whole life, because I have a visceral sense of that. And I take that with me. When I can't do it, I remember that. Uh, stepping through the hallway, washing the dishes, carrying my children, walking here and there, um, just being having to be equanimous when they're crying and feeling like saying, shut up, but, you know, just giving in and letting the mind be really big and having some time for metta to fill it and then saying something. So equanimity and the energy of endurance, it's that moment-to-moment endurance. Having a clear vision, an aspiration of where, what is your highest aspiration? It's not just willy-nilly. I mean, I know there's the validity of doing this and that by accident, as Steve was talking about. But there's some point in your practice, in your spiritual life, where you have a very clear vision of what the highest mountain is for you. And really hold that with all of your heart. Never forget that. When you get to that place or near that place, there may be a farther goal, and to be open to that farther goal. That clear aspiration to me came from the very first time I met Manindra. And it was because he told a lot of stories of people who had reached some very lofty goal, which, you know, now when I think about it, I I reflect on, wow, I... How could, have I, how could I have ever made such a lofty goal? But that sunk into my heart and never was forgotten because he told stories of a simple householder like myself by the name of Deepama. And you've probably along the way in the Dharma heard many stories of Deepama, um, someone who reached very, very uh, high attainments in in the spiritual life, both in the practices of concentration and also very deep insight and uh, uh, liberation from greed, hatred, and delusion. And so as I heard those stories, it became exceedingly clear to me that that was possible for me also. It wasn't some far-off place in some heavenland but that was possible for a simple householder who, who had a job uh, working in, you know, in the community, just like me. And what did it take? What kind of um, mind or heart did it take? Manindra would often say, it takes infinite patience. He would say it in one way or another. And that patience led the way for all of the other qualities to come. That silent inner resolve, even when the kids in their teenage years were screaming profanities at me, and I would, you know, I couldn't wait. I, I wanted to join a nunnery a long time ago, you know, I finally got to. But um, it, and then there were times when I, I'm just trying to relate to how it is for you. There were times when I'd open the refrigerator and not know, you know, where the next meal was going to come from. But, you know, it always came. It was fine. There were times when I had to be really hard, have this really tough love with, the, with my kids when they were just hanging on me too much and they had left the house. And I'd have to say, no, 
Don't call me until you find a job. Don't call me again. And it, would, it was so, so hard to keep that inner silent resolve and to just know that it could be aspired to, that um, ever-deepening insight, that more and more purity from greed, hatred, and delusion could be experienced. And it's true. It can be. Manindra would talk about the unconditioned and Nibbana as if it were, you know, just after eating a pizza. <laughs> it would be nothing to, to hear about that. I, I, I have a sadness that it isn't talked about so much because during our time, in, in those days, 30 years ago, it was always talked about. And so we're, you know, wanting to bring those words and those aspirations, that the possibility for that, more and more into view, not just to calm the mind, although that's wonderful, not just to be in harmonious living with others, that's that's wonderful also, but to actually free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion. I think several or many of you who were in the orbit of people like Manindra know what that was like. Uh, And to uh, take those teachings in with nothing held back. So I I hope that um, you will be able to do that in your lives, you know, to actually go back to the teachings of the Buddha. Many suttas are available now, many original of the, um, the... the authentic teachings of the Buddha are available for everyone. So I encourage you to, to go for it, to, to take part, to be connected to that. Just today, Steve and I, uh, Guy and Sally, did some recordings of some suttas that will be available to everybody online so that we're just re- you can hear them being read, the words of the Buddha. So it meant always this patience to stay open, to know that sometimes it takes a lot of faith. Sometimes we have to bring in the the wisdom teachings. Not everybody's a faith person. I'm a, a faith person. Not everybody's a wisdom person. There are different kinds of beings that need to go on their own path. Steve is a wisdom kind of a person. Um... He really gets a lot of juice, a lot of nourishment from uh, hearing, studying the teachings like the uh, dependent origination, for example, the talk that he gave. But he's balanced a lot by my just telling him to be quiet and be in the moment. It's true. <laughs> I'm not telling a lie. I remember one time he said, I was just coming out and saying to him, how does this dress look on me? Is it becoming on me? And then he started to give me this whole talk on dependent origination <laughs> and becoming. And I said, I don't want to hear that. I just want to know if I can buy this dress right now. You know, is it nice on me or not? Um, so there's, there's just this place for everything. And, um, I, I, I do, and I also get a lot from hearing the teachings from Steve and understanding the Abhidhamma from what I hear from him in daily life. And so we need this kind of balance for ourselves. If we're faith types, we may need more of the wisdom understanding but then we have to know when enough is enough. And if we're wisdom types, we may need to open the heart more um, and just trust, and just trust and do the practice of being present. So where, where is the balance for you? Where is the balance of equanimity? Where do you need to constantly rebalance um, Manindra was great for me because he was such a metawala. 
and but he also he had a balance within himself but he was more coming from a meta place he we would refer to him as a walking talking encyclopedia of the dhamma um, you'd ask him one question it could take him the whole night he wouldn't stop until the last person left sometimes um, and upandita was very is very precise and that's what i needed actually manindra advised me to go take a retreat from Upandita because my I just am naturally a soft and mind-open person. And so I needed that precision, and that's why I keep going back to get teachings from Upandita. So where is the balance for you uh, in that? And where can you stay steady in your practice? Where can there be this enduring heart, enduring mind uh, in your practice. So the balance of solitude and service, I just want to say that, the last part. Usually it's less possible to do solitude, so it takes a lot more energy to plan that. It's, it's more possible for us to do service. So uh, you know, there's a lot, when we're in retreat and we hear a lot of teachings and we've been here a long time, there's always a lot of talk, well, I've done this now, what about service? Well, of course, there is a lot of room. There is a lot of space in our lives to do service. And we're not diminishing that here when we're doing the solitude uh, time in retreat. So it's, it's just seeing that we need this time also. And as Thomas Merton says, we do a great violence, actually, when we don't have the time for solitude and we're going out there and trying to serve the world from that place of of inner disquiet. So if we're doing service, can we do it from a place of inner quiet? And all of us, of course, do service. Find the place where we're most interested in, and we can't do it all. You know, Steve and I and others that I know, we choose where are we most interested? Where can we give the most person-to-person juice? Um, Recently, there's a practitioner, a person of color, um, who's helped a lot of other people and is going through a time of great need. And so um, we decided to take whatever we were putting someplace else and put into this person for this person's recovery so that that person can go out and and help continue to help many people. But that meant that we had to take our juice away from some other things in in the community. And we we just have to make those decisions. Sometimes there's judgments about what one person is doing and another person, but we never know. They might be helping one little child in their neighborhood, one next-door neighbor, one, one little uh, animal who needs some love and attention, and not to diminish that. Just helping one being is, is helping a lot because that makes ripples out into the world. Not all of us can be a big bodhisattva. So find out where it is that you can balance even in that solitude and service just want to end with um, this from William Stafford. Because it's about taking your life in your hands and turning uh, and taking your heart and body and mind and turning it towards wisdom and knowing what it takes to do that. So this is uh, the little ways that encourage good fortune. Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. If you do not have things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed. You may be heroic, but you will not be wise. If you have things right in your life, but do not know why, you are just lucky, and you will not move in the little ways that encourage good fortune. The saddest are those not right in their lives, who are acting to make things right for others. They act only from the self, and that self will never be right. No luck, no help, no wisdom.
This talk was given by Steve Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on December 11, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Arch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.